two overarching points that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes that English ivy has in common with these two points. One is that ivy is connected to the vine. Ivy is a vine, and like any vine, whether it be English ivy or poison ivy or Virginia creeper or some other kind of vine, uh, pieces of the vine, segments of the vine, leaves on the vine are connected one to another. And secondly, that the vine is connected to the soil and that from the soil it's able to gather the nutrients that it needs in order to be sustained and then to pass those nutrients on up the, uh, up the vine. I know this because I had uh, several pieces of English ivy that were growing up a tree in the backyard and I did not want the tree to die. So at first I started pulling some of the vines down and a few weeks went by and they kept growing up. Uh, but then I, I decided, no, I'm going to eradicate this vine from the soil, from the bottom up, and hopefully then it will die. And so it took me probably the better part of two or three hours to make sure that I got down to the root, eliminated the vine, and then thankfully uh, today my tree does not have any English ivy growing on it. Uh, so that point being made, the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us in essence that we need to be connected to the soil, which he spends the better part of this book demonstrating as Christ and his finished work on our behalf. And then secondly, and this is sometimes where uh, you and I fall short, at least in our practical life, that we need to be connected to the body, one to another. And so we can compare our relationship, our connection to Christ, to the connection between the vine and the soil, and we can compare our connection to each other, similar to the various segments or leaves on the vine. Now, I enjoy from time to time reading what unbelievers have to say about the church. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's infuriating. Um, but there's one book in particular that was written towards the end of the last century by a man named Vine Deloria Jr. And the book is entitled, God is Red. And in this book, he makes this assessment about Christianity. He says, today we inherit nearly 500 years of church growth and organizational control over the religious lives of people. The multitude of Christian churches in America testify to the misplaced energy that has gone into maintaining special doctrinal divergencies by disciplined organizational growth. If, as each group claims, the church is the body of Christ, then he goes on to say, Christianity is indeed in sad shape, if it is in any shape at all. And that's the end of his quote. Well, today we're going to look at a section of scripture uh, that will challenge us to see two things. Uh, one, that the church is ultimately connected and sustained to Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And two, that the church is connected and sustained uh, by a relationship one with another. We'll see that the hallmark, and really if I were to ask you to define uh, the church, I would probably get a plethora of definitions, various that would be true, perhaps some that would not. Um, but in essence, the church is a colony of heaven who demonstrate relentless faith in practice. 
And this practice, as we're going to see here in the text, uh, takes on three different dimensions. One, the practice of perseverance, the practice of provocation, and the practice of public worship. So let's go ahead and look at the first one, uh, the practice of perseverance. So the writer of Hebrews spends the better part of the book up, into, up until the 23rd verse, which began our text, showing how Christ is the great high priest, how that it is by virtue of his blood that he shed on our behalf, being a substitute death in our place, that we are cleansed and that we are given the confidence to enter the most holy place, uh, the very presence of God. Because of this reality, and he talks about it, making a definitive argument that it is something that we have because of Christ and Christ alone. He offers three let us statements in this passage, and one of them I did not read. Uh, it's included in verse 22, uh, but basically it begins the three let us statements, uh, and it begins by... The writer is saying, let us draw near to God, and the confidence that we have to draw near to God is based on the fact that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and that we belong to him. And then the second let us statement we'll look at more closely today. So it's the second that is included here in verse 23 where he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The author is emphasizing the responsibility that you and I have as believers to hold fast to a confession of faith. Now, it may seem a bit antiquated, perhaps a bit irrelevant to most of the world around us, that you and I, when we gather on Sunday morning, when we live our life throughout the week, we claim to believe that a book written some 2,500 years ago is the divine revelation of God. In fact, we have a confession of faith. In this church, a confessional church is a church that has a confession. We do. We call it the Westminster Confession, and we say that it is the most accurate interpretation of the Bible. Maybe if there's a couple exceptions that do not strike at the Bibles of religion, they're acceptable. But by and large, we say that we confess the Bible to, believe, to be the very foundation of our faith as a church. And so... Many in the world around us, when they hear that, automatically mark us off as if we are outdated, antiquated, and old school. How can we believe that something written 2,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago most recently uh, can be true, at least true to the point that it should govern our everyday lives? Well, even though there is a biblical case for believing all the counsel of God as it is contained in the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, I would submit to you that really what the author of Hebrews is talking about is not a great voluminous, uh, voluminous tome of doctrine, but rather it is the hope that we have in Christ and his finished work. It is rooted in the past, it impacts the present, and it illuminates the future. Ultimately, this faith, this hope that is referred to here in verse 23, this affirmation of faith is the simple truth that Jesus saves sinners, period. Sometimes we like to get caught up in uh, debating the finer points of doctrine, and we forget how earth-shattering, we forget how fundamental this basic truth of scripture is that Jesus saves sinners 
And so if we were to read the previous nine and a half, ten chapters of the book of Hebrews, we would see that the author of Hebrews makes this case to a primarily Jewish community that this Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior came to save everyone from sin. That all of us are sinners and Jesus saves sinners. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that we are to hold on to this faith without wavering. How is it possible, how is it humanly possible to do that? We know, we reflect on the truth in our own life that daily we are challenged both by our culture at large as well as our own desire, our own innate desire, either to allow the idolatry of our age to influence how we affirm our faith or to contribute our own efforts to our salvation. And so if we look back on our own lives, let alone over the past 2,000 years since this epistle was penned, how can it be that any believer living in any age since the advent of Christ's first coming until now can affirm the salvation without wavering? Well, here we see that what the writer has in mind is a doctrine that we've come to talk a lot about in our church called the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the believer. It makes up the first point here in my sermon. But really what he addresses is not so much the perseverance of the saints. I think sometimes we want to focus on that to the exclusion of the fact that it's really the perseverance of God because it is God the one who chooses God the one who elects, who is ultimately enabling us to hold fast without wavering to the truth that Jesus saves sinners. This is why he says at the end of verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Not the one receiving the promise, but the one who made the promise is faithful. This is why Christ could teach his disciples and teach you and I emphatically in John chapter 6, verse 37. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And again in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The perseverance of the saint, the perseverance of the believer, the endurance of the church is not something which God has entrusted to mere individuals, even though it does not absolve us of the responsibility of holding fast to the fundamental belief that Jesus saves sinners, but rather, the fact that God is faithful and the point that the writer here of Hebrews is making is that God is the source of our strength, that he enables us to fulfill this responsibility. It is not us who affirm the promise, but the one who made the promise who is faithful. God will not let us go. Both of my boys enjoy the zip line. And at some point in their life, now they're getting to the point where, and this is where my analogy breaks down a bit, but now they're getting to the point where uh, they're strong enough to hold on by themselves. But I remember when they first tried doing a zip line, 
Um, they held on with both hands, but mom or me, uh, one of us would hold their legs and, and, and would walk them as they walk past, as they slid past on the zip line. And of course, they shrilled with delight and they said, I did it, I did it, I did it. And uh, probably in their own hearts and minds, they felt confident that they truly had made it across to the other side. But they were not cognizant of the fact that had mom or dad let go, they would have immediately fallen to the ground. Now, I give that illustration as an example of what the writer of Hebrews is really trying to say. He's trying to say, first, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't let go of the zip line. But then secondly, he who promised is faithful. And his faithfulness means that he is the one holding on to us. Lest we forget that. It is our grounding in Christ. We belong to him. See, the battle is always won or lost. Not in conceptual things that we affirm. Even though what we believe does matter because it's a demon, it, it demonstrates or, or it influences rather how we live. But the battle is always lost in our practice. How we live is the most certain indicator of whether or not we truly hold fast to the confession of our faith. In our daily lives, as you go about your day, whether it's at school or home or work or at church, whether or not you truly believe that Jesus saves sinners and that God is holding on to you, or whether you believe that maybe you or I have something to contribute to that process will impact how you live your life. That's one of the fundamental points that the writer of Hebrews here makes. Now, this leads me to the second point, which is the practice of provocation. So when we hold fast to the confession of our hope, knowing that he who promised is faithful, he goes on to make the third and final let us statement in verse 24, where he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, we live in a day where there's a generation known as the millennial generation that often gets picked on for one reason or another. And so I'll uh, do my bit of picking this morning. Uh, but those who are millennials were born between 1981 and 1996, so if you fall in that category, uh, bear with me. Uh, but this generation has been accused of being the, the least likely to commit, um, the least likely to affirm the value of either religion or any other institution in their lives. In his recent book, Century of Difference, How America Changed in the Last 100 Years, a sociology professor at New York University stated that millennials are more likely to have a do-it-yourself attitude toward religion than any other generation. Now, our tendency as a church, as conservative Christians, is to hear that and become defensive and argue that such a trend is only indicative of the day and age in which we live and perhaps may lip service to the approaching end of days where we will look for those to abandon the faith. And all that is true, but we cannot dismiss the fact that many in this generation's millennial or otherwise have no faith in the church 
not because of any default of, of their own, but because they have observed, more often than not, scandal and hypocrisy both within the church as well as other institutions throughout our country. And so, in a desire, with a desire to see authenticity, which is a phrase that's thrown around a lot these days, many do not consider the church, fellowship with Christians, as having any type of strong lasting impact on their relationship with God. Instead, they have a do-it-yourself attitude. The reality is that as believers, we have a divine ordained task of provoking. Now, I'm not going to stop there because some of you know that you, or perhaps have acted like you, you have a divine task to provoke um, in ways that uh, we shouldn't. I think if we were to assess the landscape of the evangelical world, we can all say, well, Christians are provocative, um, as are other people. But the truth is that the Bible commands us, this passage of Scripture commands us to provoke one another. Now, the ESV says stir up. The King James Version translates the Greek word here translated as stir up as provoke. And I think that captures better the intent of, of that Greek meaning. In fact, that word is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it's where uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas had a falling out over, over John Mark. He provoked them. You can see that it came with an intensity that had a result. Well, as Christians, the writer of Hebrews says that we are to provoke one another, not offending each other, not getting under each other's skin to the point to where we dislike each other, but rather we are to provoke one another to love and good works. We are to stir up now, the attitude, and please don't be offended at what I'm about to say. I mean it with all love and sincerity. But the attitude of millions gathered in churches all across America is that the pastor or the preacher should provoke them to change their lifestyle by means of a riveting sermon that awakens them from their weekday complacency. I do not intend to demean the central Row the proclamation of the word has in our lives. It is the reason that we gather to hear the word preached and to worship collectively. It is the center of our corporate worship. But the author of Hebrews says that we as a body, each individual Christian, is to provoke one another to love and good works. It's not simply the responsibility of the pastor. It's not simply the responsibility of the elder. But every believer should provoke one another to love and good works. In other words, there is no such thing as an individualistic Christian. Just like when you see a vine, you'll never see a vine that's healthy that only has one leaf. So if you are a Christian, to be separated from the body is an, is an oxymoron. To be separated from the greater body of Christ is a dichotomy. It's something that is simply not true. It does not exist. We are to provoke one another, the writer of Hebrews says, to love and good works. I need you. You need me. And we need to be provoking each other to love and good works. Now, what does that look like? Well, for starters, it looks like the body. Those of us who gather in the name of Christ 
having a positive influence on each other. When we get together, I should have an increased desire for holiness and an increased hunger for Christ. I think it's become the Achilles heel of the last decade within the evangelical Christian circle for authentic believers to revel in their brokenness. And the enemy of our soul has used this infatuation with our failures to guilt trip others into endorsing fruitless Christianity. If when you and I get together, whether it's in a corporate setting like this or a small group or a home fellowship group, if you do not make me uncomfortable with my sin and I do not make you uncomfortable with yours, then we have failed to provoke one another to love and good works. If when we get together, we do not feel open with one another to the point of being able to share our sin, then we are masquerading behind a facade of being a body connected one to another when in all reality we are not. When you and I get together, whether it's corporate worship, Sunday school, small group, home fellowship group, those are moments divinely ordained for God to shape his body into the people he wants us to be. There's no such thing as an individualistic Christian. We should be encouraged to go deeper with God, provoked to love and good works, not become mediocre in our faith. Are we challenged to hold fast to the confession of the hope without wavering? Or do we feel, perhaps unconsciously or subconsciously or in a way that we do not share, that we would have fared better being mindlessly entertained by YouTube sensations? The third point is where I want to spend probably the most of my time this morning is the practice of worship. The writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near... Let us hold fast and let us consider how to stir one up, to stir up one another to love and good works. And then in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what in the world does encouraging each other, does meeting together on Sunday does meeting together corporately as a body have to do with the day of the Lord? Let me ask you, how many of us this morning, and to some extent I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, um, but how many of us truly believe that one of the most important things we can do for the advancement of the kingdom of God is to attend public worship? You see, we live in a very pragmatic society. And we've been trained by this pragmatic culture to see the net impact of the kingdom of God as expanding into social transformation. And this is, to some extent, true. That's the destiny. But we've become so infatuated with the destination instead of the journey that we've stalled in the road. The society will never be transformed until we realize that we need each other like a vine needs the branches. A society will never be transformed until we realize 
that what we do here on Sunday is not simply get together and admire the way each other are dressed or get together and appreciate beautiful music or get together and have a great conversation with somebody that we've not seen throughout the week. What we do here is rooted and grounded in the very mystical union that you and I have with Christ and with one another. It's rooted and grounded in the very fact that the way that Christ, that God ordained his body to function, the body of Christ to function, is rooted in him, connected to each other. And one way that that is beautifully demonstrated is in corporate worship. So what in the world does attending church have to do with the return of Christ? Because if you look at the text there, the author of Hebrews says that we should... Uh, not neglect meeting together, and all the more, as you see, the day drawing near. And I believe, and most scholars believe, that the day, one reason why it's probably capitalized there in your Bible, is the day that is being referenced is the return of Christ, when our redemption is complete and all things are consummated under him. Now, it may be true, as some argue, that the return of Christ that days leading up to it, that believers will need the encouragement of fellow saints more than ever. And I believe that to be true, but biblically speaking, we've been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. We hear that in Acts chapter 2, when, he, when the apostle Peter makes a direct quotation of Joel chapter 2, and he says, these are the days, these are the last days, the time when the kingdom of God is breaking into the present. So what does corporate worship, what does public worship, what does getting together and assembling in the name of Christ have to do with the return of Christ? Well, mainly this. In Scripture, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, is characterized as a time when saints and angels participate in a festival of glory. In fact, this festival never ends. It is the lifeblood of redeemed creation. It is the center of the new heavens and the new earth. Where John the Revelator said, I saw no temple. There was no need of the sun or moon because the sun, S-O-N, was the light thereof. This corporate worship, saints and angels and all of creation, is at the very heart of redeemed creation, redeemed humanity. In like man, uh, manner, when you and I get together as Christians, we assemble for corporate worship, this side of Christ's return. We join saints and angels in this love feast. In other words, let me simplify it by saying this. Eternity is more present in the corporate gathering of the saints than any other time in the life of the church. You say, that's a mouthful. Where do you get that? Well, Christ said, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, 20, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Was he confusing the roles of the persons of the Godhead? We know, biblically speaking, that God the Father is in heaven and that God the Son is seated at his right hand and that he has sent the Holy Spirit here doing the work of Christ, leading others to him. So was he mistaken? No. But the day when Christ shall reign over all the earth is foreshadowed 
every time you and I get together in the name of Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And even more so as you see that day drawing near. In other words, as we assemble in the name of Christ, let us be aware of the fact that something far greater than our perception perceives is happening. That we are bonded in him as we worship him together. There was a recent survey that was conducted by the Pew Research Foundation that discovered that people who rarely attend religious service, the largest reason they give, 40%, was that they practice their faith in other ways. And what's staggering is that the percent was highest among Catholics, 47%, but followed, and they, they did a survey of all types of faiths, of mainline Protestants, of evangelicals, of um, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. The second largest group expressed, 46%, that the reason they do not regularly attend service is because they express their faith in other ways. If the author of Hebrews is correct, and I believe that he is because I believe the Bible, if one of the reasons that we are to assemble and worship publicly in the context of being redeemed is so that we can provoke one another to love and good works, and if our assembly is the moment in which the future is more clearly seen, most clearly seen in the present, then there is no reason why the state of our churches is disconnection and anemia as perceived by Vine Deloria Jr., the unbeliever whom I quoted at the beginning of the sermon. The heart of our text is that the church is characterized by a relentless faith in practice. We practice perseverance holding on without wavering to the faith, to the affirmation that Jesus saves sinners. We practice provoking one another to love and good works, and we practice public worship. Now, let me just, in closing, say a brief message specifically to our communicants, to those who are taking communion for the first time this morning. Communion, and I'll say it for their benefit, but everyone else's too. Communion is not just communing with our Lord Jesus Christ. When we partake of the meal of which we're about to partake, it's not just a matter of the grace of God being commun communicated to us, his bride. It is that. But communion is a, has a bifocal purpose. Not only do we have communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not only do the grace, does the grace of God manifested in the finished work of Christ become something that we feel and taste and ingest spiritually in a way that blows the mind, but also we have fellowship laterally, not just vertically, but laterally one with another so that I'm a part of you and you're a part of me, and I need you 
and you need me in order for the body of Christ to do the mission of Christ until he returns. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that through Christ you have chosen us, you have reconciled us to yourself, that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son to die for us, that we might not perish but have eternal life. And as your church, as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been called out through whom you are proclaiming the message of the ages, and through whom you are manifesting the reality that eternity has invaded the present and that the future is represented in what we do here. We ask, O oh God, that you would enable us by your grace to have faith in practice throughout our lives. That we would practice perseverance, knowing that it's you who hold on to us. That we would practice provoking one another to love and good works, knowing that we need each other and that our lives are enriched by each other. And also that we would continue to practice assembling together in the name of Christ until you return. For it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen.